Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Hello, and welcome to Tent Talks. My name is Natasha Beckles. I am an Anglican priest in the London Diocese, and I today have the privilege of not only being your host, but being a co-host and welcoming and two amazing theologians to this space. I want to introduce them. Um, I don't want to waste any time. Um, We want to jump in by sharing that we are very fortunate to have the very Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, who serves as the Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary and the Bill and Judith Moyers Chair in Theology at Union. She is also Canon Theologian at the Washington National Cathedral and Theologian in Residence at Trinity Church, Wall Street. Her work has focused on womanist theology, sexuality in the Black Church, racial and social justice, and she's the author of many books and articles. Those books include Resurrection Hope, A Future Where Black Lives Matter, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God and Sexuality and the Black Church, A Womanist Perspective. So I also want to introduce uh, my dear lecturer and (laughs) teacher in um, orders, (laughs) so Dr. Selena Stone, who is the tutor and lecturer in theology at St. Melitus College in London. Uh, She is a research consultant. Her PhD completed last year at the University of Birmingham, focused on pneumatology, Pentecostalism and social justice. And her research and teaching focuses on the themes of politics, power and social justice, which is where she began exploring um, as a practitioner while working as a community organizer and program director at the Center for Theology and Community. She is a much sought after speaker, just like (laughs) Dr. Kelly Brown. And I'm just so excited, you can hear it, the fangirl in me, to have these two amazing (laughs) black female theologians talking about who God is, and I'm here to learn, and I hope you are here to learn. So, Without further ado, I want to hand over to Dean Kelly and give her some space to just share her heart with us. And then we will follow that up with some conversation and questions. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm the fangirl. What a privilege, and I really mean it, to, to be here again with you, uh, Reverend Beckles, and Dr. Stone, to meet you and, and to hear, I hope, about uh, your, your work. Thank you very much. I am humbled uh, by your invitation to be in this conversation uh, with you today, and I know I'm going to enjoy it and look forward to the conversation, the dialogue, and, 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 and not a monologue from me. But I, I want to start because, uh, Reverend Beckles, when you first issued this invitation, one of the things you said was, well, we want to hear a little bit about the church and eschatology and what eschatology has to do with the church and the church has to do with eschatology. And my first thought was, wow, eschatology, this is really taking me back <laughs> to my days uh, as, as, as a student. And, and it's something that at first I thought, oh, I have, don't spend much time about, but in fact, I do. 
And in fact, eschatology, I think, is at the very center of what it means for us to be church. And indeed is something we can see with all that is going on in our world today. That in fact, the church is being called back to its very, uh, I might say, eschatological mission and role. So let me just say a bit about that. For me to speak, of course, well, as we all know, to speak of eschatology, right, is to speak of the last things. For Christians, that is defined by the one who is the center of our faith, the one who was crucified, Jesus Christ. For Jesus, was the embodied already presence of the eschatological just future which God promises in our not yet unjust sinful reality. So put simply for me, the very good news which Jesus preached, taught and embodied in his very ministerial presence was the good news of God's promised future. This was, is a future in which there will be no sinful binary realities of dehumanizing opposition or subjugating oppression. And so it was that Paul said, in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. Put in, in our language, there are no binary, no gendered, raced, uh, sexual, binary realities. This is not in God's just future because it wasn't in God's creation. And as Jesus said, this eschatological future, these last things would be a future where there would be no first and last, not be, where the first would be last and the last would be first, not because there would be a reversal of fortunes, but because there would be no last, there would be no first. Every single solitary human being without exception would be treated and respected in God's future as the sacred creatures of God's that they are. This is an eschatological future of equality and mutuality, one that reflects the loving justice of God. And so it is to speak of the very kingdom of God that Jesus perfectly embodied in all that he did and all that he was and for which he was crucified is to speak of eschatology of the last things and to understand the meaning of eschatology is the last things this is what I like, is to recognize that this is a future that will triumph and have the final word. That is, God's justice will prevail. That's made clear in the very resurrection of Jesus. And so it is that to speak of eschatology is not to speak about some esoteric abstract realities. Rather, it is to speak about the way things must be in relationship to the way things are. And so let me quickly answer this question because you said, so what does that have to do with the church? What does that have to do with the church? Simply put, everything. For to be church is to be on an eschatological mission. In as much as the church, in as much as faith rather, is about partnering with God to mend an unjust world and thus to move toward a more just future, then churches as communities of faith by definition 
are accountable to that future. In this regard, churches are accountable not to the way things are, but to the way God has promised they will be. They are therefore, churches are to be in their preaching, in their teaching, in their ministry, in their mission. They are to be in this present reality, the just, the already just divine future in our unjust human present. I like to think of the words in this regard of Gustavo Gutierrez, who said that the task of church communities is to reflect upon and enact a forward directed action, driving history toward the future that is God's. So I'll say this and then stop. What does that look like? Well, we can talk about what that looks like in very particular ways uh, in the conversation, if you'd like. But here's where it must begin. And this is the church's, one of the church's fundamental responsibilities. And that is the church must reset and expand the world's moral imaginary, beginning with the moral imaginary and the various societal national contexts in which churches find themselves. What do I mean by that? To speak of the imaginary is about more than the way in which justice is conceived or imagined. Rather, it is about the moral zeitgeist, if you will, of a nation, of a people. The moral imaginary reflects the distinguishing spirit of a nation, of a people. In this instance, the moral imaginary is that invisible force that defines the way in which a nation, in which a people engages matters of injustice, even as it defines how it enacts, how it engages matters of injustice, even as it defines how it enacts justice. Essentially, the church must expand the moral imaginary to truly envision the justice that is God's not the justice that we conceive as human beings that is shaped by our sinful realities of injustice. And so, and I'll end with this, in a world community, for instance, in which anti-Black white supremacy so shapes the moral imaginary of peoples across the globe is so pervaded our moral imaginary that it is hard to even imagine a justice that is not synonymous, almost reflectively so, with the privileging of whiteness. A moral imaginary shaped by an anti-Black, white supremacist kind of gaze, if you will, cannot hold a, a future of justice in which there is no oppositional raced realities in which Justice is not synonymous with the privileging of whiteness. It is the church's responsibility to expand the moral imaginary so that we can indeed live into that eschatological future that is the gospel message where 
There is no first. There is no last. We're all human beings are treated as the sacred creatures that they are. So the church's mission is an eschatological mission. That's not an easy mission. We can talk about that. Uh, uh, but it is nevertheless the mission of our faith. So I'll, 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 I'll stop there. Uh, I'm so moved by all that you have to say, because there's just so much to reflect on. And this, you know, this moral imagination that needs stretching by this church. But I want to just straight away invite Dr. Selena to come in what you've been busily noting what Dean Kelly has been saying I mean I have so many questions I mean thank you for just opening up such a rich area of conversation so well and I think the best way to open a conversation is to just lay out a buffet of options and (laughs) and avenues we can explore um so there are so many avenues I think we can go down I think I think the first thing I want to ask and maybe reflect on is the dangers of having an over-realized eschatology when it comes to the church. So I think many people who are Christian or who have been around the church and many people who I think have probably left initially came to the church or came to Christ and, and believed in the church because of the beautiful image that you have explained, because of this expectation and this belief that the church was this renewed humanity, a place where they could belong a place where they could work towards this vision of this this expanded moral imaginary um, of witnessing to an alternative way of being in the midst of a of a disorder in the wider of our wider political life, which pits group of people against one another and commodifies humanity and dehumanizes at every turn. Um, you spoke about this kind of anti-black white supremacist imaginary, which shapes so much of our political life and yet came to discover that those same imaginaries shaped the church, um, but didn't always find a way, I think, of, of, of managing that with the expectation that it shouldn't be this way. Um, so I wonder what you think the dangers are of kind of leaning into this view of the church as this sacred, holy community, when often in reality, it doesn't live up to the holiness that it might indeed preach, and it might even at some level believe in, um, but doesn't embody in a way that really presents the truth of this this hope yeah thank you uh stone for that question so i want to say two things in relationship to that first and i don't mean this flippantly because i i mean it seriously to call ourselves church is aspirational just because we claim to be church doesn't mean that we're church. It is something that we are called to live into, right? And so it's sort of like we are all children of God. That's a fact. That we act like it, not a fact. So that it is once a proclamation and a challenge, once a claim and a challenge. We are called to be church. That doesn't mean that we are church. Secondly, there's a difference between being a social institution that happens to be religious and being a church. And to be a church 
in so many ways defies what it means to be a social institution. The reality of being church is not first and foremost, and not primarily, even though we recognize the importance of institutionalization, but it is not first and foremost or primarily an institutionalized reality. It's a movement, right? And so you you were called out of yourself, not into yourself in terms of what it means to be church. I think of it this way, Dr. Soong, that if indeed, particularly, obviously we're talking out of the Christian faith tradition, we have at the center of our faith, a crucified Jesus. At the center of our faith, it's about time we take that seriously. And to take that seriously is to recognize first and foremost, that Jesus didn't end up on the cross because he prayed too much, because he was, he got in trouble for the way he did liturgy or ritual. That wasn't why he ended up on the cross. Now, he was perhaps able to go to the cross because he prayed, but he didn't end up there because he prayed too much. He ended up there because he was the embodied already presence of God's just future. And he continued to act against the unjust realities in the ecclesiastical, social, and political order in his time, pushing, always holding himself accountable to God's just future. And so Jesus, the Jesus movement, our presiding bishop here in the United States always, he calls the Episcopal Church into the Jesus movement. And some people say, so what were you Episcopalians doing all along? I say, what are Christians doing all along? Uh, That we have to be called back into the movement. The Jesus movement is a movement. You know, you got to move. And where do you have to move to? You got to move your feet. You got to move your bodies. You got to move your world. You got to move your community closer to God's just future. And so I think the answer to your question, when you talk about sort of this over-realized, because I will clearly, uh, that is when people settle for the way things are and then try to carve out even this little space that everything's okay. Well, but that's that's, that's not what it means to be church. That's not what it means to be a community of faith. And so, yes, we do need that, you know, Jesus did go away to pray. Jesus did go away in solitude, but only to go back out into the world and and to be church. And so that's, and I think I'm, I hope I answered, I'm thinking of uh, what you asked, and so I hope I've answered uh, your question, but I, but I think one, we have to recognize that we, we aren't there yet in terms of what it means to be church, that's an aspiration, so why don't we try to get there? Uh, we aren't a social institution, that's not our first call, and that uh, church isn't about when you talk, going into a building. And I think one, if we didn't learn anything, at least in my context, and I don't know how it was for you in in England, but here when the pandemic struck at its height and church buildings closed down, right? Everybody's trying to figure out, oh, how are we going to celebrate Eucharist and how are we going to do this and that and the other and doing things via Zoom? Fine. But I thought that also provided us with an opportunity to reset and to rethink 
rethink what it means to be church, right? And that church isn't simply about what happens inside of a building on Sunday morning at an altar. In fact, the pandemic allowed us to rethink why we come to the altar in the first place. We're so busy doing what we're supposed to do at the altar that we forget what brings us there in the first place and what we're and that we aren't supposed to stay there and 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 that liturgy is work and means work and not simply the work of of the ritual but the work that we are to be uh, empowered to do back into the world and so i i think if we take seriously who's at the center of our faith then that is the thing that prevents us from settling uh, with what you started out saying into this sort of over-realized, like we ain't there yet, uh, eschatology. I sit here and I'm listening to you. I, I'm approaching it as a priest. And I think one of the things, you know, the privilege of being able to lead a Eucharist is that, you know, work of human hands. Yes. And fruit of creation, it comes together in this place. But I, I found it so encouraging that you're, that this altar is not the place to stay. We're going, we're bringing thanks. We're bringing the best of what we have. And, and we're seeing that transformed. And we're supposed to be going out to love and serve the Lord. And I, I suppose what breaks my heart is where you hear versions of preaching, theology, thinking, church life that seems to think that justice is just for those over there yeah and justice is not about us and you know all of the the various ways in which I, I'm watching in the institutional church that we split between the two um there's people do, wanting to say they do a bit of social mission and it feels like philanthropy it feels like um dare I say a spiritual masturbation where you make yourself feel good about right. the fact that you did something for this right. particular group and there's no understanding of the transformation that happens the interaction that happens when you have proximity the, how yes. you are changed um to through the rejections you might receive through the 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 gratitude that you see something of your own spiritual condition that you see in the eyes of someone else and know something about who you are and I just, I, we as a church are poorer because we don't have that proximity. We don't have that sensitivity that this is important. It was so important that that's what Jesus spent his ministry doing. Oh, I'm so glad uh, that you brought up this word proximity because proximity matters, right? And here's, and you were so right uh, in terms of Jesus because Jesus. When I think of proximity, uh, well, two things I think of, you know, black theologian, mystic Howard Thurman says that fear and prejudice take root or, or, or how does he put it? He says the soil of separation and division is that which causes fear and prejudice to take root because it fosters hate and it stifles empathy, right? And so this, this is why proximity matters. Jesus, I, when I think of proximity in relationship to Jesus, I, I think immediately when you said that, I think of his words. And if you greet only your friends, 
He said, what more are you doing than others? It seems to me that Jesus is calling his disciples and us to reach beyond our small circle of friends to those who've indeed been othered and marginalized by society, by ourselves. And so he's asking them to sort of reach beyond their closed circles and, 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 and intentionally be proximate with the dehumanized, the demonized, the marginalized of our world. For Jesus, that was the lepers, right? The Samaritans, the blind, the widow, the prisoners, all those people, I say in my context, the black people of his time, right? He, he went into Samaria. He didn't move away from it. He brought those most othered into his circle of care and, and, and salvation. And what's What's the transformation that can take place that you're talking about, uh, uh, Reverend Beckles? It's not only uh, the way in which we can indeed help to empower others, but it also is transformative for us because if nothing else, we discover that those we consider not like us, those that we othered are just like us that they are people with hearts that can be broken and need love, as I like to say, bodies that can be hurt and need mended and souls that can be crushed and need hope. And so that people are not, unless we come into proximity with those who uh, are othered or that we see as different from ourselves, it makes it easy for us to consider them numbers, consider them statistics. And we see these statistics, so many dead, and we don't imagine the humanity of the very people that we have in fact demonized and, and dehumanized. And, and so proximity, uh, matters. And, and, and that's what Jesus, in fact, calls us to so that we can see each other's humanity. And when we see another's humanity, our humanity is indeed enlivened. And, 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 and to dehumanize another is really to dehumanize ourselves. The other thing that she said about Eucharist, there's these words that we say as good Episcopalians and those in the Anglican communion who celebrate Eucharist every uh, Sunday. And we just go right over these words and sometimes I want us to sit in them and that's do this in remembrance of me, right? And we act like the, what he's calling us to do in remembrance of him is simply, you know, celebrating the Eucharist, the body and the blood, et cetera. But that remembrance there is anamnesis, and it means more in the Greek, and it means more than simply a mental recall of events. It really means bringing the past into the present, right? And in this regard, it's Jesus talking about bringing the past that is Jesus into our present reality and embodied past into 
are present. And how do we know that? Because he says, this is my body. This is my blood. He's pointing us to the embodied incarnate reality of who he was, of his ministry. We are called to bring that into the present. And so the Eucharist in so many ways, I like to say sometimes is an uh, amnesis sending off. It is that we are empowered there at the altar in that remembering to then move from that altar in that sort of amnesis-like way. You know, theologians like to make up words, so I'll say amnetic way. This amnetic sort of sending off to go out into the world and to incarnate that past that was Jesus into our present. That's the liturgy. It's not about do this in remembrance of me and take your little bread and take your little wine. And I don't want to, you know, belittle that. But that is to remind, to empower us now to do what Jesus told us to do in that last supper, to remember, re-remember, re-embody, to bring his past ministry into the present. And it's connected to what you said. That is a ministry that always begins in proximity with the most othered, marginalized, disinherited, if to use Howard Thurman's words, people of our society, our world, because it is through them that when they say, those on the most underside of injustice, when they say justice, ah, then we know we're on the way to justice and we aren't simply enacting other privileges, but truly enacting God's just future and thus truly remembering. I mean, as soon as I hear people talk about the Eucharist now and proximity, as you've both done, I automatically think about M. Sean Copeland's Fleshing Freedom. Yes. And this yes. amazing chapter that she writes on the Eucharist as this, as this moment where we don't only remember Christ, but we notice the bodies that are and are not at the table. Yes. And, it, and, it, and I wonder what I talk about the Eucharist now, I always get this chapter for students to read because it, it moves the Eucharist out of this disembodied spiritual moment that, right. that only thinks about the body of Jesus to actually thinking about the body of Christ collected together and those who are excluded from gathering around the table, like it brings together for me yes. what you were both saying about proximity and and the Eucharist. That is, it's a space of being connected together, which is, is why I wonder whether post-COVID that moment becomes even more significant because we notice the people that are not there, the people yes. that we've lost in the pandemic, um, but also the people who we've just not even paid attention to, haven't That's been right. there even before COVID. The people who were, who were not noticing are not gathered around the table and what that actually does to us, our claims, our aspirational claim to be the body of Christ. Right? If, if we're missing the arm, are we, are we OK? We shouldn't be OK if That's we're missing right. the foot. Well, we don't even sometimes notice the foot's not there because we are so preoccupied with the arm and the hand and, and other things. Or because we're putting our feet on other people's backs and, yeah. and, and, and next. That is so right. And here's the thing that's so interesting. And I yes, Sean Copeland's work here is so significant and, and so meaningful in fleshing freedom. And here's the thing. You know what? The Last Supper didn't take place 
on a mountaintop somewhere or on a beach and they were all sitting looking at the sunset. No, ain't things wonderful and couldn't wait to get to the next day. And, and Jesus didn't have nothing better to do. It's, we've called it the Last Supper because it was right before and all knew it, Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' crucifying reality. Jesus was in that moment. Jesus was the crucified one, right? And so what does it mean to be called into this uh, Eucharistic moment with the one that is crucified, right? We are called to remember the crucified. We are called into a ministry for the crucified. Jesus, you know, that's who he was. You know, he wasn't going home to go to bed. So, so that we have to always remember as well the full context of that Eucharistic moment. Uh, and that's why I like what you've said. We can't spiritualize it because something terrible was getting ready to happen. And why was it getting ready to happen? Because what led to that was Jesus really trying to embody and point us toward God's just future. And it is a future that only finds its meaning in relationship to crucified realities and in relationship to crucified classes of people. And if we remember that, it's not all this spiritual good news. I mean, you know, you can feel empowered and feel loved by Jesus, but Jesus is calling us to, to, to he's loving us into loving, loving us into loving those that are crucified, loving us into loving the crucified classes of people. And, and loving us into loving isn't simply, you know, this romantic good feeling. It's loving us into loving the love that is the justice of God. God's justice, God's love is enacted, is embodied through justice in our world. That's how we know the love of God. I really want us to talk about crucifixion. Mm. And I want us to talk about <laughs> black lives. Now you just, Reverend Beckles, jumped you know. up on Sorry. that. They can't see you. You jumped they up They can't on see me. <laughs> but I'm like, like I want to talk about scars. Talk to me yeah, about crucifixion yeah, and scars. Let's, let's talk, let's about, talk crucifixion. about crucifixion. Because folk don't like to stop that. Yeah, yeah, let's do I, that. I need us to talk about crucifixion. Yes. And this is pure, maybe a selfish question, because I'm thinking about this a lot recently. But I also think this will resonate with people. And I want to link this question and reflection to what we talked about earlier in terms of the pursuit and the struggle for this eschatological hope, this church, this world that is restored, redeemed and all of that lovely stuff. Because one of my, so a piece of work I'm doing at the moment is on the well-being of clergy in the Church of England, mm. who are Black, Asian, minority, ethnic. And so many of their experiences of engaging in this struggle to help the church to be what it says it wants to be and we can critique whether there is a genuine desire because again I'm thinking about it's aspirational it's not just an institution but I want I wonder whether there is a, a danger when we think about Christ the crucified one and we talk about crucified classes of that automatically in our in, in our in our minds linking to the suffering of black people right. who are in institutions where they are being dehumanized disrespected whether the church or in the wider world, because this happens across the board, um, that this, this crucified Christ becomes an almost legitimizing figure. 
for the violence that's been suffered at the hands of, of Black people, of, of so many groups, Asian people, women, LGBT plus community, like the list goes on. Right. How do we prevent this crucified Christ from being weaponized in that way? Because that's what I, I feel happens at times for people who are who are still called into spaces where they're at risk, but also those who are doing the oppressing. That's How right. do we avoid that? What a wonderful question. And 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 in my most uh not to be self-referential, but to to show the struggle because it's a it's a it's a question in my most recent book, Resurrection Hope, I think you mentioned it, uh, Reverend Beckles, this becomes one of my central questions, right? Because what I recognized is that I almost got stuck in this sort of redemptive suffering motif, right? Where you end up sort of saying that salvation comes through suffering, that salvation comes through through that cross. Uh, so here's the thing. What the cross makes clear to us in this regard, that Jesus, that God through Jesus makes clear God's utter uncompromising solidarity with crucified classes of people and that any notion of salvation, any understanding of salvation, salvation that is justice, because that's what salvation has to go through. Now note what I said, through the cross. And so give me a moment and I'll come, come back to that. So the cross signals to us that. And it also allows those people who are the crucified classes of our world to know that, you know, that's where God is. God is God is with them in that struggle to survive, to thrive, in that struggle against uh, their crucifying realities of death, you know, like realities like poverty for which brown and black persons are disproportionately across the globe impacted by. And all of the, you know, we, we talked about comorbidities of COVID, all the comorbidities that go along with that, you know, lack of health care, lack of adequate housing, lack of decent jobs, recreation options, all of those things. So that's one thing. But what we have to understand and what I recognized was that even as I was able to see and affirm and know that in order to understand the crucified Jesus and what that means, we have to see Jesus in the face of a George Floyd. You know, there's G, there's Jesus. G, there's there's the crucifixion right there. There's in as much as the crucifixion was a first century lynching, there it is in the twenty. There's the twenty first century lynching. We have to see G, Jesus is. If we want to know Jesus, then we need to know in my context of Breonna Taylor, right, uh, or an Auburn Aubrey. All these people who have been uh, crucified uh, by police, lynched by uh, police, but it doesn't. Stop there, because are we saying, because we know, for instance, what happened in relationship to the lynching in this country of George Floyd, it enacted global protests. So are we saying that Black life needs to be sacrificed, needs to be crucified in order for there to be the uh, salvation or these movements toward a more just future? No, because it doesn't stop there, right? It's that if the cross doesn't have the last word. 
God says no to these crucifying realities through the resurrection. And so in fact, you know, we salvation is not found in the crucifixion. It is found in being called to new life. It is being it is found in being called to conditions that nurture life, not death. Crucifixion nurtures death. And that's not where salvation is found. And so, you know, nobody is in as much as we are called to be in solidarity and to understand the 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 radical meaning, if you the revolutionary transformative meaning of God's uh, justice and the new life that God calls us to a new life out of these conditions of death. In as much as we are called there, no one is called to be crucified. Right. Mm -mm. We are called to be in solidarity with the crucified, which means moving toward understanding, hearing their pain, their suffering, the realities that have that nurture their death and not their life, feeling that as deeply as possible because ain't nobody want to die like that and moving toward the new life that we are called to. So 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 no one's called to suffer. And it also, Dr. Stone, we have to understand that these things don't happen in vacuums. We always have to understand the context. When we think of God's love, God's justice, you know, it's one that, that God loves everybody. But that universal love is also particular uh, depending upon who we are and where we are, right? So for a crucifying class of people, what does that love look like? Sometimes it looks like wrath. Sometimes it's calling you to empty yourself, what I call a crucifying kenosis, of those very things that have made you a part of the crucifying class. Empty yourself of the privileges and, you know, that doesn't make people feel good and comfy. Well, the cross is uncomfortable. And so that means you're called to the cross. You're called to crucifying realities so that so that you understand the transformative radicality of God's resurrection, resurrected new life of justice. Does that make sense? And so we can never, we can never talk about the cross. We've got to talk about the crucifixion resurrection event. The oppressor class likes to stay on Good Friday. And, and let other people suffer and say that that suffering has redemptive meaning. And you're called into that suffering, the suffering on the way to uh, new life, meaning those folk who uh, would rather be saying, crucify him, crucify him, in the ways in which they do that. There's just so much richness to take in. And I'm just thinking about how, you know, as you said, people want to stay on Good Friday and feel sorry for themselves. It's very personal. But we also see Christ on Easter Sunday. And Selena, I want to invite you into this because you have some choice words on a previous podcast to talk about the kind of scars of Christ. What is the spirit talking to us about what those scars mean and what yeah. do they tell us as a church today? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrestled a lot with this question in my in my thesis, my final chapter on hematology, because I was really interested in Paul's idea that the spirit raised Christ from the dead and the fact that Christ has his scars after the resurrection. And I, and I, I read the, the, the crucifixion of Christ as you describe it, um, Dean Douglas, as this kind of, this political death 
in which and the resurrection is at this moment of shaming the powers that violence doesn't have the final say in the life of Jesus. Um, but I, I wanted to sit with these scars, particularly because thinking about this within the Pentecostal tradition, and I think this is true in other traditions as well, the resurrection is seen as this moment of glorification and victory in such that we then end up resisting the need to ask, but, but the scars are still there. So what That's do right. we do with this? Like, how do we, what is the spirit doing? If the spirit has raised Christ from the dead and retained the scars of Christ as a, as a witness, then what does this mean for us to attend to Christ's scars in the way Thomas does? That's right. Who gets to see them and touch them? But more than just thinking about this in relation to Christ, but actually in relation to ourselves and our communities, like who are those groups of people right. who are wounded, who are scarred by our systems, by our structures, who walk around as witnesses of what's happening in the world, that are people who we'd rather not look at, the scars we'd rather not see. But actually, I think the Spirit's calling us to look at those things, right. to look at the scars um, that are speaking of what of the suffering that is taking place. Um, and that I think is a place where we then get to ask, well, what does it, what is the, what is this telling us about the state of the world? That's that we right. we like to kind of I think get drawn in by the glory of the resurrection, but in the midst of that is this tension. Um, Shelley Rambold speaks of it as kind of life in the midst of death. That's right. Or death in the midst of resurrection life. That these two things are are held together. No, that's, and that's where the meaning's found in the paradox. No, I, I can only say, yeah, amen to that because I, exactly right. See, here's what we, people, we aren't talking about and think about the resurrection. We aren't talking about, and that's the importance of these scars. Uh, we aren't talking about a disembodied resurrection, right? And, and, and so that's why it seems to me you have to keep the crucifixion and the resurrection event together uh, to, because it doesn't mean that we are called away from crucified realities. We are called into proximity. That's Thomas touching the scars, mm -hmm. yeah. touching the wounds. Yeah. We, are, we are consistently called into proximity with the wounded. Uh, with the scars and dealing with those because otherwise we just don't understand the meaning of the resurrection. We just don't understand the meaning of new life, not old life reformed, new life. That's the expansion of the moral imaginary, the radical meaning of that. And so, no, I, I, I agree with you. And, and the scars remind us that it's not disembodied. It's not uh, uh, abstract. It's not all spiritual uh, lies. It's an embodied reality. It's about, <laughs> to put it this way, bringing real bodies back to conditions of life. And even as you do that, attending to the scars which they carry from the crucifying conditions into which they have been, in which they have been trapped and trapped. And it's a consistent reminder of that, you know what, put it this way, that's what reparations is all about, right? It's that paradox. You got to attend to the scars yes. that the past crucifying realities in which you have trapped people, the scars they carry with them, the legacy of that reality is the scars. At the same time that you are also trying to repair the breach between the present 
unjust present, the crucifying present, and the, can we say the resurrected future. And, and that means repairing that breach means not simply putting salve on the scars, rep, uh, reparation in that way of the scars, the legacy of the past, because if you do that, you aren't changing the conditions that created those scars. But you also have to change the conditions and close the breach between God's just future and our unjust past. To me, I love this. You just, uh, Dr. Stone, you've opened my mind to talk about reparations in a new way. So thank you, you really have. Because reparations is about not ignoring, on the one hand, because I think it's twofold, it's tending to the scars of the past while also faith communities must also be faithful to the future. So I'm going to tell you, I'm gonna, I'll credit you, but <laughs> the next time I, I, I talk about that, that is, that is so, yes, yeah, so brilliant. That is, that is, that is right. That's what those scars mean. You've opened me up to a new understanding theologically and uh, to talk about those scars in relationship to reparations. Yeah. That deep, yeah, that is deep and wide and such a privilege just even to, witness these dialogues that go on. Um, I know that we're drawing to an end and I can't help but take an opportunity just to say, um, two of your books took me clear six months to read. Each. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good because, you know, I've, I come from that kind of administrative background. You can read at pace, but reading theology is about thinking very deeply and widely about yeah. these things and um i'm coming very much from a caribbean heritage yeah and to read your book on sexuality in the black church yes deep and wide you know classic. classic and oh, i just i'm here voicing it and recommending it to people the church is in so much struggle and to hear the narratives taken not just from we here in the UK, we have inclusive air quotes, inclusive church, and it's violently exclusive sometimes of yep. black and brown bodies. Um, we still are, women do not take up male space yet in the church. Mm -hmm. And to hear your perspectives coming as a womanist, you're teaching us so much as um, black British Christians, whatever order that comes in, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you know, really trying to find our space and reflect on what that is and hold our Caribbean-ness, particularly for those on the on the line. Um, and also your work on the Black Christ, you know, mm. really um, opening up my heart. It wasn't just a Jesus is Black conversation. It was, you know, really co comparing and com contrasting different people's perspectives and where those ideas take us to. And I just want to commend you and bless wow. you and thank you for the work that you're doing because it's huge work in, the, in, you know, hearts that have been and had to watch so much abuse go on. It's still going on. You know, we've got a war going on in Europe at the moment and that is throwing us into, it's giving us historical insight into what might have happened years ago when you're seeing black and brown bodies can't get on trains. Right. And, and you know, these, these are, the, I, I want to give, you know, the listeners a context to these conversations that are very real, very present, as you talked about the, the Eucharist, it, remembering us, touching those scars, you know, connecting all of these points. So I, I just want to thank you for the privilege of being here to just listen. In. Well, first of all, let me thank you 
And oh my gosh, both of you, Reverend Beckles and Dr. Stone, for your work, and I mean it in your witness and for the theological gems that I've learned uh, today. And, and this is what theology is all about. And there's nothing that brings me more joy than doing it with, as I like to say, my black sister girls uh, across the globe. And Amen. I mean it, you know, we talk about black girl magic. This is what it feels like uh, to me and, and you two are doing it. And thank you for inviting me into your space. And I really do hope this is a wonder of Zoom and I look forward to a day perhaps when we will meet and it's not across Zoom, but uh, let's consider ourselves in this together and this won't be our last conversation. And then just to say to what you said and maybe way to end about what's going on in the world. You know, we can't ignore the context in which we find ourselves in and, and a context of a world uh, that is so much in need of moral leadership. Mm. And, and uh, this is our Kairos moment, our, mm. our moment to uh, live into. Uh, and respond to a world of injustice that is pregnant with the justice of God and it's just in, in challenging us. And, and I think of what's going on, of course, in Europe and Ukraine and everybody, everybody deserves to be free. Yeah, yeah. Free to live and flourish into the very sacred beings that God created them to be. So it breaks my heart. My soul is troubled to see what is happening to a people in Ukraine as it has happened to people across the globe. And when we see what you pointed us to, that brown and black bodies are being turned away from trains it reminds us of the ways in which the sin of anti-black white supremacy has so created a breach globally yes. between not only who God has called us to be and who we are. But in so doing, it has created a breach between us and our humanity. This is a sin that we must address as a people, as a nation, and certainly as a church and name it, anti-black white supremacy, enacting itself even in the midst of a people who are struggling to be free. Mm. I don't know what more one can say. So our hope, however, is in conversations like these and our hope is in the church, moving toward becoming church. And I just thank you guys for this conversation. We thank you. Thank you for being a friend of Tent Talks. Thank you for your time. Always. A sister friend. <laughs> a sister God bless friend. you both. Amen.
God bless you. Thanks. Bye now. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.